All right, we are in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, and may I just ask at the outset, do you have two handouts today? Okay, so if you looked at what those are, you see we really have our work cut out for us today because um, I had mentioned a couple of times to you before that I think maybe twice, today will be the first time I attempt to do this, we, we need to double up because if you look at what you have today, you have lessons 7 and 8, so you say, oh, well, this is uh, where we're going to be ahead. No, we, not really, because I have 14 lessons and 12 Sundays. So if you do the math, that's why I'm trying to double up today. And it's just been hard, really hard, to try to decide where to do this. And I'll tell you, I, I eventually picked today for the first time to do this for the simple reason that the first set of verses is more brief. So if you look at... Uh, Lesson 7, which is where we will begin, you'll notice that uh, this covers verses 8 through 12. And I don't know if other people who do this kind of work or have done this kind of work have this, but I'll tell you, I spent a lot of time, and I just found myself this week, I, I just here's something I wanted to really just sort of spend less time on. I, I told myself, okay, I'm going to spend 15 minutes here and 30 minutes on the other one. And the more I studied these verses, the more I just kept finding myself drawn to them. So this is going to be a real challenge today. And the other dilemma is, though, that when we get to the second section, um, verses 13 through 22, you get to the end of the chapter and you have um, a, a well-known minefield, so to speak, in the book of 1 Peter. And uh, when we get there, if, according to whatever time we have, I'll do my best to tell you what I think. But don't worry about that if you think something different, because undoubtedly there'll be people in here who do. That's just the way that passage is. And it's nothing to get up in arms about or worry about or to be upset. All right, so let's read from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless... For this, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. This is a little bit different than how we typically do things, because usually the preacher gets up or the teacher gets up and reads the text, and then you hear the message. In this case, Peter saves the text for last. Here's the text. For whosoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his evil from, tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And you can right away tell, depending on how your Bible is set up, or whether you have notes or whatever to call your attention to this, that this text that Peter uses for his message in the, in the opening two verses is from Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. So, what are we going to do with this today? Well, uh, again, and I, I apologize for going quickly on some of this stuff, but we're going to look at this today as the Christian as a brother. And you'll notice in verse number 8 that he says, finally, all of you. So you think about the fact that what's, what's been happening in the more immediate previous context is he's talked to some different groups of people. I mean, he's considering them Christians, but he's still singling out different groups of people. He talks to servants, remember that? in verses 18 through 25 of chapter 2. And in the opening part of this, he talks to, uh, to wives, then he talks to husbands. 
But he gets to this section, and what he really wants to do is to address them all. And that's why I think way earlier when I gave you some designations that I said I would try to give a little more color than just say the Christian as a brother. And so this kind of concerns church life more generally, if you want to look at it that way. And the reason that I say that is because this is all of you. That takes in everyone, all the brothers and sisters that are in uh, his readership. And if we think of it like our church that way, and he addresses them that way. But you'll also notice, if you're familiar with the King James rendering, in the ESV, as we read it, you get down to brotherly love, and it, the King James translates that love as brothers. Also, if you go back to 2.17, so that's an important verse, I think, because Peter has already actually made a reference to exactly what we're doing here. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood. All right, now, the brotherhood is bigger than just here, right? But we think of it in this context today. We think of all our brothers and sisters that are part of Community Baptist Church. And you and I are related together as the brotherhood, which consists of brothers and sisters in Christ, which harks back to this common bond that we have as a result of the new birth. And so what I want to do is try to develop this briefly by talking about the relationship, we'll just be very brief on that, but flowing then out of this relationship that we have, there are some responsibilities that Peter outlines, and I think that's where the real heart of this is today, but the, the, the toadstool, so to speak, the lily pad that you're leaping off of is this idea of the brotherhood and uh, the relationship, as you see there, that we have because of the new birth, which Peter talks about, in also verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1. So we mentioned he's been speaking selectively now to everyone in general. Christ is our common bond. So in considering the responsibilities, let's talk, let's get out of the way the negative first, okay? So that we can end on a positive note. Because there are, I've divided this into two things, what we must avoid and what we must embrace. And what we must avoid are what he is talking about when he refers uh, in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil. This kind of becomes a, a favorite word, good and evil, good and evil. And our word here for evil, kakos, is a word that has the idea of malice associated with it. And if you were to do a, a study, if you have, can, can do like an ESV if you just want to use good and evil, or however it's translated in the version you use, if you've got a concordance ability with that, you find Peter is, this just keeps coming up. He keeps hammering on these ideas of good and evil. And it has the connotation of malice, which we saw back in chapter 2, verse 1. Um, so we have to be very careful. There's a distinct concentration, folks, and let me just say this. There's a distinct concentration Good and evil can cover a lot of territory, right? But there's a distinct concentration in what Peter says beyond just the general on our speech, our words. And in today's society, you know, that's more than just me talking to you, you talking to me. You've got all kinds of words that we use in all kinds of contexts, whether it's text messaging or emailing or you leave a voicemail for someone or Facebook or some other form of social media. Words are all over the place. And if there's any one word, 
well, there's probably several, but it, if there's a word that jumps into mind for me right away as characterizing so much of speech in the world in which we live in today, it's either discourteous or unkind. So when we look at this, there's a particular emphasis on this. You see this coming up, do not repay evil for evil. What's our response if someone says something unkind to us, particularly if it gets into this idea of reviling? And so he mentions that. He says, no, contrary to that, we bless. The word bless there is eulogeo in Greek, which means to speak well of. It's a real challenge if someone has not done that for you, but you're to, you're to do that in return. That's to be your response. Um, so he says that here and mentions then the we get into the text, you'll see this same concentration coming up because he says this, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. So you see how this is kind of coming to, there's Peter's word evil, there's the reference to the tongue. Then he says his lips from speaking deceit. So go back to chapter 2, verse 1, and you'll see both those words also in this very same context of our, our Christian commonality, our, our bond as brothers and sisters. He's just gotten done at the end of chapter 1 talking about being born again. Now he says, look, as newborn babes desire the, desire the sincere milk of the word and put away all malice. That's this word evil. Put away all malice and the very next thing is deceit. So this, this goes to intent. What is the intent behind our words? And sometimes we become aware later that people got an intent out of our words that we didn't mean, in which case there's, you know, we, we, there's opportunity to clarify that and even apologize for that. But folks, really, the thing for us as Christians is never to intentionally engage in that kind of speech, that which is designed to be hurtful or vindictive or unkind or which engages in being misleading. And we're saturated with this right now. How much of what you think you hear about the geopolitical situation right now do you think is designed to mislead? Well, I'm just saying. I mean, it's become, it's not like it's new. This is, this is like since the Garden of Eden. But it's become a, a tool that's constantly used. You're constantly trying to say the opposite of what you're really thinking or wanting to do to mislead people in this respect, and, and we, as Christians, we can't be that way, that's wrong. We're to follow in Christ's steps, um, as it says in 2.21, and we saw this already developed, that he did not respond in the same way in which he was treated. And the, the Psalm also says that not only are we to speak well, but we're to ble uh, strive for peace. And I don't know if I have these verses, yes I do. Um, think about peace as a Christian value. But I say to you, Jesus said, both of these are from the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5, 44. Uh, I just want to bear testimony personally. That works. If you're, if you're really, I'm not saying this is the primary intent behind this, but this idea of praying for those who persecute you, what, what do you do? How do you get the victory over this welling up of our natural tendency to respond in kind or to be embittered over words or actions of people. 
And a long time ago, I read this, and the Lord seemed to point this out, and I started to do this. And I found it's very difficult to pray for people and be mad at them at the same time. So I would just encourage you, you know, because what happens, what I think I'm trying to say is just an iteration of the replacement principle. If you push out the wrong with the right, then the, the right thing tends to predominate. And God has to give us help to do that. That's all there is to it. But then, speaking of Christian values in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. So, when we look at all of these things, um, these are the things that he is particular on telling us that we need to avoid. And he says something more, though, and I, yeah, <laughs> just so much to say. But he says, look, you're only hurting yourself because if you, if you engage in this kind of speech or in this kind of conduct, then he says, you must not be the kind of person who loves, good, loves life or values good days. Now think about that. You, you, we don't think of that, that when we do it. We think we'll feel better if we retort. But you don't. You really don't. I mean, maybe for a few seconds. You might have thought, boy, I really told them off. But you know what? Then later, you don't feel good with yourself. And there's a reason for that, because the kind of stuff grieves the Holy Spirit. And we lose God's favor. Um, this is what he's saying here. That You look at verse 12. This is some really interesting language. The eyes of the Lord are upon. This is a parallel construction in the original where you, it uses the same preposition both times, but the second one has a, different, a little different force. Contextually, you can tell that. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, which is an indicative of his favor, as is explained by the next phrase, his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord, literally it's upon, but the idea is against. And that's why it's translated that way here for us, those who do evil. So look, folks, let's just try to realize that doing the things that our flesh entices us to do, doesn't really matter whether it's what I'm talking about now or something else, may seem appealing at the first, but they don't leave you feeling good. They, they, they rob you of peace, they rob you of joy, they rob you of God's favor and blessing, and they just, if you love good days, you know, the, the, writer, the writer in Ecclesiastes talks about, he got to the place where he just said, I hate life. Well, who wants to go around that way? I mean, you know, my dad always used the expression, he says, yeah, you feel like going and taking the gas pipe. And we'd all laugh, you know, because it was just one of his common expressions. But so what are we going to do in the positive? You know, it's one thing to inveigh against that which is wrong, but what do we do to figure out what we are to embrace? And, and this, is, this is really astonishing if you spend time with this, which uh, we'll try to take just a moment. But Peter Marshall's five adjectives, you'll notice they're all social in context because we're talking about the brotherhood. They are designed to grab attention. This is kind of a linguistic observation for the simple reason that four of the five, if you were looking at this in the original, they only occur here in the New Testament. One of them only occurs one other time in the New Testament, so there's a sense in which when you're looking at this, it grabs you. And then they all, they're all designed to, in one way or another, lead us back to that example in all things. We're to follow in his steps, which is Christ. So what are they? And by the way, t 
take the notes, look at them. If you come up with a better word for any of these, let me know. I don't say this is invaluable at all. But first of all, Peter mentions unity. So he says, finally, all of you have one mind. You know, folks, here's the thing you have to, I guess, maybe say practically about that. We just don't all think alike. We have different viewpoints on things. So what's Peter talking about when he says that we're to have unity of mind? Well, I think what we, what we can say in a practical vein is just to remind ourselves. And you have to, it seems like you have to keep doing this. You have to keep reminding yourself that um, what unites us is more important than anything that might divide us. And you, that's the thing you have to keep in focus because if we let ourselves devolve into all these little petty ways in which we view things differently or may take a different opinion or in a different interpretation or whatever, that's endless. You just spend your whole life all wrought up and, and upset with people and, and even yourself. And uh, not necessarily my favorite president, but I'll certainly acknowledge that he delivered some good speeches. In 1961, John F. Kennedy was addressing the, the Canadian Parliament. And he used this exact phrase, but I'm going to read a couple sentences because this is really, I don't know if you had a speechwriter back in those days or what, but this is good. It really is good. Uh, geography, he said to the Canadian Parliament, Geography has made us neighbors. History has made us friends. Economics has made us partners. And necessity has made us allies. Those whom nature hath so joined together, let no man put asunder. What unites us is more important than, is greater than what divides us. And we have to keep that in focus in the brotherhood. That Christ, and I have some verses here for you. Uh, well, I thought I did. Yeah, I do. Um, we have the mind of Christ, says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16. But more to the point in his exhortation in Philippians, where he's really honing in on this mindset that Christians should have, he says, we have the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16, but in Philippians 2.2, complete my joy of being of the same mind. And then he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what is that? Well, of course, that's where we're not so worried about being right all the time as we are glorifying God. I'm just putting it simply as we, we see that passage unfold. It talks about Christ's sufferings, his humility, and then his exaltation, which if we can get there, we'll talk about in the next passage. So there's common focus. There's sympathy. Sympatheo in Greek is a compound that means to suffer with. So that, that would represent common feeling. That when we see that someone around us is suffering, we can let that person know that we enter into that in whatever way possible with them. Now, you can't do that if you don't talk to people. I'm just saying, if you come to church and just, I'm, there's nobody here I'm thinking about, okay? I'm just talking generally. But if you, if you always just come to church and sit down and never talk to anybody, how are you ever going to get to know them and how are you ever going to enter into their needs, their sorrows, and their burdens? And I, I realize some folks will overdo that with you. <laughs> but still, this is an important thing that we come to the brotherhood 
and realize there are folks who care about us and can share how we feel about something and how, what we're going through. Brotherly love is a common bond. We've already developed that. Um, tenderness, we'll call it a tender pit, pity. This is our common pity. This is the only of the five that is used one other place in the New Testament. It's Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tender-hearted. There's the words translated tender-hearted. Now, I'll tell you something. For those of you who know these words, know some of this original vocabulary. Um, when Greek wants to talk about that, it uses a wholly different word than we use in English because we talk about the heart. Boy, my heart really goes out to that person. But sometimes we do use the exact word that that Greek uses here. We do have an actual English counterpart because the Greek word's referring to your guts, which sounds like a real turnoff to us. I mean, we don't really say, boy, my guts really go out to you. But we do say, oh, that is so gut-wrenching. And there it is. That's, that is the concept that's here. Um, and there's humility, which I've decided to call common esteem, kind of hitting more on the application of this, because what does this Philippians 2, going back to that verse 3, say? Do nothing from selfish, selfish ambition or deceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. What does pride do? Pride makes me esteem myself more important than you. I think I'm more important, so I should do all the talking and never listen, or whatever iteration it, it, it takes. But if the mind of Christ is in us, and we have an esteem and a, and a respect for one another, in which we realize that each of us is equally important and valuable within the body of Christ, that's why some of you might notice this, and if you're carrying a King James, it, it translates courtesy here. And I, I, I die hard on that one, because I'd love to preach on courtesy which we don't have much of today. But what's going on, for those of you who are wondering, is there's, a, there's a, a wording difference. Some manuscripts have this word here. Uh, others have a different, slightly different word that does mean, a, a very reasonable translation of it is courtesy. Um, so that's kind of your explanation there. Okay, I would love to say more, but the responsibilities are there. And I kind of talked through it before I advanced some of the slides. By the way, let me just back up and say one quick thing. I, I was trying to think about what, what do we do in church? And whenever we take in members here at Community, what do we do? We hear the church covenant. We don't read it. It's played. And I, you know, I really respond to that. I'll tell you why. Because in, in our church in Pennsylvania, that was, a, that was a part of membership. When someone came to the service at which they were going to be joining the church, it was prescribed that we would read the church covenant. And, I rem and it was very similar to what community has. And I remember when I came, people always give you all this information when you first come, and they were saying that, you know, um, my predecessor, I guess he, he thought, that, thought they said, I don't know that this is true because I know him fairly well, but they said, well, he thought it, it used a lot of time, and so he, he de-emphasized reading that. And whether he did or not, I don't know. All I know is, is that when I looked at that, and I thought, this is really important, that every time someone joins our church, at least we have a reminder 
And we had ours um, in our, you know, we re- used Rejoice too, but whatever, we went through three of them in the time I was there, but we had it right in the front flyleaf of our hymnal, pasted right in there. And so you didn't have to go far and wide. You could get your hymn book out. You could read it. If you read some, a document like that, that's kind of what we're reminding ourselves of the responsibilities and privileges that we have in the brotherhood. And that's important. So, all right, uh, yeah, ways to give. I don't think so. I mean, not now. Do we have eight? Yeah. Okay, so my, my, my burden was I just didn't want you to have abbreviated notes. I wanted you to have the whole thing. It, it, you know, if it's not worth anything except to help you start the fire, that's fine. But uh, so we come now to this, the Christian as a stranger. I'll let you read and look at this later as to why I chose the word stranger for this designation or, or this application, because there's eight of these in this section of Christ as our example. And um, so I'll let you take a look at that, but we have to move along. Um, so what I want to do here is talk a little bit about if this world is not our home, if as having been born again, we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. What kind of, in that kind of a context, what kind of things does Peter decide to say to his audience about how to follow Christ's example, which is supposed to be sufficient to us in our sufferings? Because as strangers, we probably will, sooner or later, encounter some hostility. Right? All right, so let's read it. Now, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, it's going to happen sooner or later, When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited, or was waiting, in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of the dirt of the body, but as an appeal appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, so we're going to look at these thoughts under two headings with whatever time we have at this point. Um, We're going to talk about some specifics to guide and then some examples to cheer. And so what can Peter say to us? What can Peter say to his audience you're living in this world as strangers. You may encounter some opposition or hostility as a result of that. He was, I'm sure, looking at 
what he certainly saw either happening or on the horizon with Nero and all of that. And I want to point you to something in the passage because I think that one of the things that's made this passage, I mean, it's under any circumstances, it's difficult. But it's more difficult if we get so lost in trying to figure out what a specific part of a specific verse means and don't analyze the broader context to figure out, well, how is all of this fitting in and to what end is Peter using it? Why does he even bring it up? If somehow we can get a hold of that, we may be able to make better sense, and there'll still be several interpretations of these verses, but if we decide on what Peter's trying to accomplish and the interpretation doesn't fit that of some of those difficult things, then maybe we want to go back and spend a little more time and think it through again. So I want to point out that something that unifies the two sections here, verses 13 through 17 and then verses 18 through 22, is the matter of a good conscience. You'll notice it's mentioned in both sections. Verse 17, he says, For it is better for you to suffer for doing good. Uh, Well, where is it? That doesn't seem right, does it? No. Um, 15? 16? Yeah, okay, so um, if I got that wrong, please correct that. Yes, 16. And also while we're doing some housekeeping, yes, having a good conscience. While we're doing some housekeeping, um, drop all the way down your outline to the very last sentence before the word conclusion. And do you notice the verse reference there? It just says Peter 2, 4 to 5. Do you see that? If you have a pen or a pencil, write 2, 2 Peter. I noticed that after I'd already sent the stuff to Pastor Andrew, and uh, so I couldn't really go back and get that fixed. All right, so good conscience. Um, And then he mentions that in relationship to God, he mentions conscience, the appeal or answer of a good conscience to God. So right away, we've got two different things to think about this or consider this in. We've got toward God, and I want to talk about that first, and then we've got towards men. So I'm actually dropping down to verse 16, or I'm sorry, verse 21 first. Now isn't it interesting when he talks about this, he talks about the appeal. He says baptism is the appeal or the response, would also be a a valid interpretation of that word, of a good conscience to God. In this same context, he also talks about things which if you think about the practice of the early Christians, when they got ready to baptize. What kind of a confessional? I mean, we have that in Acts chapter 8 or whatever it is where, you know, the verses are uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and he says, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Remember that? So at least it causes us to reflect on the fact that the early Christians were serious about this. Baptism meant something. And you would use baptism for exactly the purpose that God intended, and that is for a public confession of faith. Whether you had 10 people there or 200, it really wouldn't matter. It would be an opportunity to give a public confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's risen from the dead, and that now you identify with him, buried with him by baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. It's a picture, it's a symbolic representation of conversion. I'm identifying with his death on the cross so that the old Tom Coleman, I'm saying, is in the past. 
Now I'm identifying with Christ coming up from under the water. Say, why do you use water? Well, try burying somebody under dirt. They don't come up. So it's probably good that we decide, that the Bible decided to give us water. Anyway, uh, in, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. So if you're thinking about a hostile world, sometimes it's hard to take a stand, isn't it? And if you talk to some Christians, they will plainly admit that one of the reasons they don't want to be baptized is because they don't know what people will think. Now, I'm just going to share with you my perspective as a pastor. To me, baptism is important, and I, I certainly rode no hobby over it. I think if you look out there at what, what people in some of our circles, different eddies and currents within Baptist circles do, some people talk about it all the time. Some people don't talk about it at all. And I think both of those are probably the wrong way to go. But how is it that we talk about communion and do communion and take that seriously all the time, but we don't necessarily feel that it's important to preach on or talk about baptism? To me, that's a mistake. You have two ordinances. Jesus left them both. How do you know if it's the UPS man coming down the street? Did you recognize his truck? If he gets out of the truck, you recognize his uniform. How do you recognize Christians? This is the emblem he gave us. And why would I not want to do this? But on the other hand, I do understand peer pressure, and I do understand why people So Peter. This is the example. He's talking about waters, and it, it, baptism comes to his mind because he's talking about the waters of Noah's flood. And it's, Peter's like a lot of preachers. One thing sends his mind on another thought. And so he talks about baptism as the lead example of, having, of doing what shows that you have a, a good conscience towards God, that you're taking your stand for God as, as he has laid out in the Bible. And it's no mistake, then, that when you look at this, and particularly in a context of persecution, it was less e easy perhaps in Peter's day to do this than it is ours because you could come to a place like this and maybe you'd be worried about a couple of your friends if they didn't think you, it was... But by and large, everybody around you would applaud that decision on your part to follow the Lord and believers' baptism. It's not that way everywhere, and particularly when it's in a context of hostility or persecution. But, as I point out here, the stand was less easy in Peter's day and context, but we will follow. And this is where I'm going to relate these two back to one another, these two mentions of conscience. If we sanctify Christ as Lord, then that becomes what's paramount to us, pleasing him, following him, doing what he wants. And if I come to be convicted that this is something God wants me to do because it honors his son that I give a public confession and that I identify with his death, burial, and resurrection, then I do that. I follow in his steps. And so Romans 10, 9, and 10, that probably 90% of this class can quote, when you correlate that with this verse, six, uh, verse yeah, 16, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. I don't mean to sound pedantic, but I, I have to admit, I, I just don't care for how the ESV handled this. 
And the reason I say that is because it's a, it's a grammatical thing, and I'll throw the terminology out because some people in here like to know this kind of stuff and are interested in it. And there's some of you that actually bring your, your original language stuff. But what's going on here is that the ESV confuses the verb meaning with what ought to be a predicate accusative. The predicate accusative is the word Lord. The, wor the verb is hagiazo that means to sanctify. So what is it really saying if you have a predicate accusative? Sanctify Christ as Lord. Instead, what's being done here is the emphasis is being placed on honor Christ the Lord. Holy is being made into the predicate accusative instead of the word Lord. It should be the emphasis on the word Lord. It's the same thing you have in Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's the same exact construction. It's the same predicate accusative. I don't know why they do that here. To me, it, it robs us of a key thought, which is my focus has to be on somehow pleasing the Lord. All right, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, in the world we have all kinds of jitters. It seems like you turn on the news and it, they play to this stuff all the time. World on edge, 150,000 troops. Well, the thing of it is, folks, whether it's that huge geopolitical thing and Vladimir Putin and his missiles and tanks and everything else, or whether it's the problem you've got right now. God's in control. Jesus is Lord. And in the, in the context of Nero, it isn't Caesar. You could get yourself out of a whole lot of hot water in the first century if you just said that. Caesar is Lord. The early Christians said Christ is Lord. So, anyway, we'll move on. Now, what do you do about people? Good question. Well, go back to this reference to a Good conscience there, first to be prepared with the gospel. He says, ready always, ready always, prepared always to give an answer. Um, how does it translate there? Um, ready or prepared? 15. Um, prepared. Good. That's, that's the correct sense, because you can have ready in the sense of willing, and you can have ready in the sense of prepared. So ready here means prepared. In other words, could we... Tell someone the gospel? Do we know enough of the verses or enough of what needs to be said? Um, so he mentions that. And he says, also be ready to give a defense. And here's the word apologia, which people who have studied this know you have a whole line of apologetics is a study of biblical field of study. It's where you would give a defense. That's what Ken Ham does when he gets on there with Bill Nye. <laughs> you know, giving a defense. But you do it in the right spirit, because if you don't do it in the right spirit, you just do more harm than good. And so he mentions you do this with gentleness and respect. Um, and you also try to have a good testimony, which is the idea of having a good conscience again. Because when you're slandered and they revile you, then they see your good conduct and they're put to shame. So same thing he was really saying back in that section in chapter 2 earlier that we looked at. Okay, now, we've got to look at this, because here's the whole thing, and we're low on time. But So, I don't know, maybe I'll come back and say a little bit next week. That's not a promise, it's a maybe. But 
if you're looking for examples, okay, so here's the point. Here's the whole point I'm trying to get at. So if we are careful to follow these guidelines so that we have a good conscience towards our, our fellow believer and our fellow man, and we're also having a good conscience towards God because we're honoring him in the way that he outlines, whether Peter just happens to use the illustration of baptism, but there's a ton more you could talk about. Then if you do right, typically what follows, God blesses you for, for your obedience, right? And we see that. So I'm not just inventing that out of the air. Verse 14 talks about blessing, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Verse 9, do not repay evil for re evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a what? Blessing. And all things being equal, we don't obey God to earn his blessing, but when we obey God, God sees fit to bless us. Is that a correct statement? Okay, so if that's true, how do we show that this, is, are there any examples that can be given to encourage us in this line? Well, Christ is the overarching one. He suffered, though not for his own misdoing. Let's look at verse 18. I, I will have to say something next week because I, I just can't keep us over time beyond 20 minutes. No, not really. Um, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The operative phrase that I'm referring to here is the righteous for the unrighteous. I would really love to come back sometime if, if given the opportunity and preach on verse 18 because this develops just verse 18 on its own. This verse is so rich, it develops so much Christian theology, particularly in relationship to the sufferings of Christ. What is the nature of Christ's sufferings? They are, um, words I was using for, but let's make three statements real quick. First of all, they were vicarious, is the technical word you use, substitutionary. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, right? He didn't do anything wrong. He wasn't suffering for his own sins, so they are vicarious. It says that he might bring us to God. I don't have time to develop the mechanics of this, but basically the thought behind that is they are reconciling or they are propitiatory because Bring us to God is the regular Old Testament expression also used in the book of Hebrews for the sin offering. And that was what Christ was doing by, by presenting himself a sin offering to remove the barrier between us and God, which is sin. That's reconciliation. That's propitiation. Two different turns of thought, slightly different meanings, but roughly in the same ballpark of meaning. So what we're saying, three things about the sufferings of Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous, it was vicarious. That he might bring us to God, reconciling or propitiatory, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's an interesting one. That's our first point of discussion. But if we put that phrase with once, put those two thoughts together, once and being put to death in the flesh but being made alive in the spirit, then we realize that the sufferings of Christ were also final. They were successful. 
they accomplished the goal. The sin offerings didn't, right? In the Old Testament, the sin offerings didn't. There was remembrance, constant remembrance. But when Christ suffered, he suffered once. This word once means once for all. No, no, no repeats. No mass necessary. No further good works on anyone's part necessary. Not that they ever were in any dispensation. Christ did it, and he did it all. And he did it once. And when he comes the second time, what does the book of Hebrews tell us? He'll come apart from sin. Won't, his, his dealings then won't be as they were when he came to die on the cross. They'll be in victory. This is going to victory. I'll have to explain more about this next week. Why I said this is our first interesting thing, this sentence, and we have to quit. When it says being put to death in the flesh, we understand that fine. Being made alive in the spirit, a little less in the ESV. King James, capital S. NIV, capital S. ESB and NASB, I think. Is it NASB? A little less or big? Little. Yeah, they'll give, you, they'll give you the margin, but in the actual translation, you have two prominent translations that we use all the time. King James and NIV, you may consult that quite a bit, use a capital S so that they're taking the primary interpretation that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. ESV and NASB use the, the little in taking the reference as to the human spirit, the spirit of Christ. We'll have, to, we'll have to stop here and talk about this next week. So I hope you come back. We have a lesson and a half to do next week. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you gave us. Thank you for the ground we could cover. I just pray, Lord, that you would find uh, it pleasing what we do here today, the honoring to Christ. I pray that you would find our, our desire in our hearts to be like him, to understand more of how he is so that we may follow in his steps to be the thing that we walk away with. In Jesus' name, amen.